Chapter 7 Battle Tactics After several years in Saskatoon, my family moved into a new neighborhood. River Road was on the banks of the Saskatchewan River, but on the lower and more plebeian side. The community on River Road was considerably relaxed in character, and there was a good deal of tolerance for individual idiosyncrasies. Only three doors down the street from us lived a retired school teacher who had spent years in Alaska and who had brought with him into retirement a team of Alaskan Huskies. These were magnificent dogs that commanded respect not only from the local canine population but from the human one as well. Three of them once caught a burglar on their master's premises and they reduced him to butcher's meat with a dispatch that we youngsters much admired. Across the alley from us lived a barber who maintained a sort of transient's rest for stray mongrels. There was an unkind rumor to the effect that he encouraged these strays only in order to practice his trade upon them. <laughs> the rumor gained stature from the indisputable fact that some of his oddly assorted collection of dogs sported unusual haircuts. I came to know the barber intimately during the years that followed, and he confided his secret to me. Once, many years earlier, he had seen a French poodle shaven and shorn, and he had been convinced that he could devise even more spectacular hairstyles for dogs, and perhaps make a fortune and a reputation for himself. His experiments were not without artistic merit, even though some of them resulted in visits from the Humane Society inspectors. I had no trouble fitting myself into this new community, but the adjustment was not so simple for Mutt. The canine population of River Road was enormous. Mutt had to come to terms with these dogs, and he found the going hard. His long silken hair and his fine feathers tended to give him a soft and sentimental look, that was misleading, and that seemed to goad the roughneck local dogs into active hostility. They usually went about in packs, and the largest pack was led by a well-built bull terrier who lived next door to us. Mutt, who was never a joiner, preferred to go his way alone, and this made him particularly suspect by the other dogs. They began to lay for him. He was not by nature the fighting kind. In all his life, I never knew him to engage in battle, unless there was no alternative. His was an eminently civilized attitude, but one that other dogs could seldom understand. They taunted him because of it. His pacific attitude used to embarrass my mother when the two of them happened to encounter a belligerent, strange dog while they were out walking. Mutt would waste no time in idle braggadocio. At first glimpse of the stranger, he would insinuate himself under mother's skirt, and no amount of physical force nor, nor scathing comment could budge him from this sanctuary. Often the strange dog would not realize that it was a sanctuary, and this was sometimes rather hard on mother. Despite his repugnance toward fighting, Mutt was no coward, nor was he unable to defend himself. He had his own ideas about how to fight, ideas which were unique but formidable. Just how efficacious they actually were was demonstrated to us all 
within a week of our arrival at our new address. <clears throat> Knowing nothing of the neighborhood, Mutt dared to go where even bulldogs feared to tread, and one morning he foolishly pursued a cat into the ex-school teacher's yard. He was immediately surrounded by four ravening huskies. They were a merciless lot, and they closed in for the kill. Mutt saw at once that this time he would have to fight. With one quick motion, he flung himself over on his back and began to pedal furiously with all four feet. It looked rather as if he were riding a bicycle built for two, but upside down. He also began to sound his siren. This was a noise he made, just how I do not know, deep in the back of his throat. It was a kind of frenzied wail. The siren rose in pitch and volume as his legs increased their RPM until he began to sound like a gas turbine at full throttle. <coughs> the effect of this unorthodox behavior on the four huskies was to bring them to an abrupt halt. Their ears went forward and their tails uncurled as a look of pained bewilderment wrinkled their brows. And then slowly and one by one they began to back away. Their eyes uneasily averted from the distressing spectacle before them. When they were ten feet from Mutt, they turned as one dog and fled without dignity for their own backyard. The mere sight of Mutt's bicycle tactics, as we referred to them, was usually sufficient to avert bloodshed, but on occasion a foolhardy dog would refuse to be intimidated. The results in these cases would be rather frightful, for Mutt's queer posture of defense was not all empty bombast. Once when we were out hunting gophers, Mutt was attacked by a farm collie who I think was slightly mad. He looked mad, for he had one white eye and one blue one, and the combination gave him a maniac expression. And he acted mad, for he flung himself on the inverted Mutt without the slightest hesitation. Mutt grunted when the collie came down on top of him, and for an instant the tempo of his legs was slowed. Then he exerted himself and, as it were, put on a sprint. The collie became airborne, bouncing up and down as a rubber ball bounces on the end of a water jet. Each time he came down, he was raked fore and aft by four sets of rapidly moving claws. When he finally fell clear, he was bleeding from a dozen ugly scratches, and he had had a bellyful. He fled. Mutt did not pursue him. He was magnanimous in victory. Magnanimous. Magnanimous in victory. <laughs> had he been, been willing... Had he been willing to engage deliberately in a few such duels with the neighborhood dogs, Mutt would undoubtedly have won their quick accept acceptance. But such was his belief in the principles of nonviolence, as these applied to other dogs at least, that he continued to avoid combat. The local packs, and particularly the one led by the bull terrier next door, spared no pains to bring him to battle and for some time he was forced to stay very close to home unless he was accompanied by mother or myself. It was nearly a month before he found a solution to this problem. The solution he eventually adopted was typical of him. Almost all the backyards in Saskatoon were fenced with vertical planking nailed to horizontal two-by-fours, 
The upper 2x4 in each case was usually 5 or 6 feet above the ground and about 5 inches below the projecting tops of the upright planks. For generations, these elevated gangways had provided a safe thoroughfare for cats. One fine day, Mutt decided that they could serve him too. I was brushing my teeth after breakfast when I heard Mutt give a yelp of pain, and I went at once to the window and looked out. I was in time to see him laboriously clamber up on our back fence from a garbage pail that stood by the yard gate. As I watched, he wobbled a few steps along the upper two-by-four, lost his balance, and fell off. Undaunted, he returned at once to the garbage pail and tried again. I went outside and tried to reason with him, but he ignored me. When I left, he was still at it, climbing up, staggering along for a few feet, then falling off again. I mentioned this new interest of his during dinner that night, but none of us gave it much thought. We were used to Mutt's peculiarities, and we had no suspicion that there was method behind this apparent foolishness. Yet, method there was, as I discovered a few evenings later. A squad of Bengal lancers, consisting of two of my friends and myself, armed with spears made from bamboo fishing rods, had spent the afternoon riding up and down the back alleys on our bicycles hunting tigers, alley cats. As supper time approached, we were slowly pedaling our way homeward along the alley behind River Road when one of my chums, who was a little in the lead, gave a startled yelp and swerved his bike so that I crashed into him and we fell together on the sun-baked dirt. I picked myself up and saw my friend pointing at the fence ahead of us. His eyes were big with disbelief. The cause of the accident, and of my chum's incredulity, was nonchalantly picking his way along the top of the fence not fifty yards away. Behind that fence lay the home of the Huskies, and although we could not see them, we, and most of Saskatoon, could hear them. Their frenzied howls were punctuated by dull thudding sounds as they leaped at their tormentor and fell back helplessly to earth again. Mutt never hesitated. He ambled along his aerial route with leisurely insouciance of an old gentleman out for an evening stroll. The Huskies must have been wild with frustration, and I was grateful that the fence lay between them and us. We three boys had not recovered from our initial surprise when a new canine contingent arrived upon the scene. It included six or seven of the local dogs, headed by the Bull Terrier, attracted to the scene by the yammering of the Huskies. They spotted Mutt, and the Terrier immediately led a mass assault. He launched himself against the fence with such foolhardy violence that only a Bull Terrier could have survived the impact. We were somewhat intimidated by the frenzy of all those dogs, and we lowered our spears to the ready position undecided whether to attempt Mutt's rescue or not. In the event, we were not needed. Mutt remained unperturbed, although this may have been only an illusion, resulting from the fact that he was concentrating so hard on his balancing act that he could spare no attention for his assailants. 
He moved along at a slow but steady pace, and having safely navigated the husky's fence, he jumped up to the slightly higher fence next door and stepped along it until he came to a garage. With a graceful leap, he gained the garage roof, where he lay down for a few moments, ostensibly to rest, but actually, I am certain, to enjoy his triumph. Below him there was pandemonium. I have never seen a dog so angry as that bull terrier was. Although the garage wall facing on the alley was a good eight feet high, the terrier kept hurling himself impotently against it until he must have been one large quivering bruise. Mutt watched the performance for two or three minutes. Then he stood up and with one insolent backward glance jumped down to the dividing fence between two houses and ambled along it to the street front beyond. The tumult in the alley subsided and the pack began to disperse. Most of the dogs must have realized that they would have to run halfway around the block to regain Mutt's trail, and by then he might be far away. Dispiritedly, they began to drift off until finally only the bull terrier remained. He was still hurling himself at the garage wall in a paroxysm of fury when I took myself home to tell of the wonders I had seen. From that day forth, the dogs of the neighborhood gave up their attempts against Mutt and came to a tacit acceptance of him. All that is, save the bull terrier. Perhaps his handball game against the fence had addled his brain, or it may be that he was just too stubborn to give up. At any rate, he continued to lurk in ambush for Mutt, and Mutt continued to avoid him easily enough until the early winter when the terrier, by now completely unbalanced, one day attempted to cross the street in pursuit of his enemy and without bothering to look for traffic. He was run over by an old Model T. Mutt's remarkable skill as a fence walker could have led to the leadership of the neighborhood dogs, had that been what he desired, for his unique talent gave him a considerable edge in the popular game of catch-cat. But Mutt remained a lone walker, content to be left to his own devices. He did not give up fence-walking even when the original need had passed. He took a deep pride in his accomplishment, and he kept in practice. I used to show him off to my friends, and I was not above making small bets with strange boys about the abilities of my acrobatic dog. When I won, as I always did, I would reward Mutt with candy-coated gum. This was one of his favorite confections, and he would chew away at a wad of it until the last vestige of mint flavor had vanished, whereupon he would swallow the tasteless remnant. Mother thought that this was bad for him, but as far as I know it never had any adverse effect upon his digestive system, which could absorb most things with impunity. Chapter 8. Cats and Ladders Mutt had always disliked cats, but until he became an expert fence-walker, he had never been able to demonstrate his feelings in a truly efficient manner. The fenced-in backyards of Saskatoon might have been built to order for the cats, and specifically designed to thwart all dogs. Perhaps as a result of this favorable environment, the cat population was large and the cats themselves had grown careless and arrogant. It was, this un it was understandable that they should feel this way, 
after many years of security, but it was a foolhardy mistake, as Mutt soon demonstrated. Once he had perfected the art of fence-walking, he became the scourge and often the nemesis of the cats on our block. When the surviving local cats became few in number and wary, Mutt went farther afield, scouring alleys right across Saskatoon for cats that had not be had not had warning of his unique abilities. Before the year was out, he had engendered such a feeling of insecurity among the city's cats that they had become almost wholly arboreal. Once, having located a cat, Mutt would make the usual futile sort of dog rush in its direction. The cat would promptly climb the nearest fence and sit there feeling at ease and safe. With a dejected look, Mutt would turn away, apparently accepting defeat, while the cat spat insults at his retreating back. But having reached a corner of the fence, Mutt would turn suddenly, and with a great leap, gain the top two-by-four. Before the startled cat had time to stand its hair on end, Mutt would come rushing toward it on its own level. The cat would now find itself at a double disadvantage. It could not safely balance on the fence while it attempted to scratch out its assailant's eyes. Neither could it safely turn its back and flee. If it leaped down to the ground, it was at once in Mutt's native element. If it attempted to retreat along the fence, Mutt's long legs would soon catch it up. Only if there was a tree within instant reach could the cat hope to escape unscathed. It was an inevitable, Mutt being the way he was, that he would one day decide to follow his quarry into the upper branches. Nor was it as improbable an endeavor as it may sound. After all, there are many other terrestrial animals that occasionally take to the trees and do so with some skill. Goats are often to be seen in Mediterranean countries, browsing the upper branches of olive trees. Groundhogs will also climb trees, and there are many reports of coyotes having been treed by pursuing hounds. Nevertheless, my family and I were electrified one morning to discover Mutt halfway up a tree in our backyard. He was climbing awkwardly, but determinedly, and he got fifteen feet above the ground before a dead branch gave beneath his weight and he came bouncing down again. He was slightly bruised, and the wind was knocked out of him, but he had proved that climbing was not impossible for a dog, and from that moment he never looked down. None of us realized just how far he would dare with his new skill until a day in the spring of the following year, when a fire engine went streaking past our house with sirens blasting. I leaped aboard my bike and gave chase. Half a block from home, I overtook a chum of mine named Abel Cullimore, also riding his bicycle, and I pulled up alongside to ask what the excitement was about. Abel was a fat youth, and he was gasping for breath. Don't know, for sure, he panted. I heard wild animal in a tree. By this time we had turned down 7th Avenue and we could see a small cluster of people grouped about the fire engine, which had stopped under a row of cottonwood trees a block ahead of us. 
The engine was a ladder truck, and the ladder was extended so that its top was lost to view amidst the bright greenery above. As we drew near, a newspaper photographer stepped out of a car with a camera in his hand. Two grim-looking householders were standing on the sidewalk beneath the cottonwoods, cradling shotguns in their arms. I walked over to them, and peering upward, caught a glimpse of familiar black-and-white fur. And I knew at once to whom it must belong. Alarmed by the attitude of the two gunners, I hastened to explain to them that the thing up the tree was only a dog. My dog, in fact. This information was greeted with hostility. Smart aleck kid, one of the men remarked. The other waved me away, saying sternly, Run along, you boy. If you wasn't so young, I'd say you was corked. The first man guffawed loudly, and I backed away. I could not really blame the men. The foliage was too thick for any stranger to identify the beast up in the tree, and anyway it was making a weird and most undog-like noise. Only Abel and I recognized the sounds as the plaintive chattering that Mutt made when he was in difficulties. I was debating whether or not I dared accost the man who was operating the fire truck controls when there came a startled cry from the branches overhead, into which a fireman armed with a gunny sack and a revolver had just disappeared. Son of a self-sealing cylinder, he bawled, a note of intense incredulity in his voice. It's a damn dog! Mutt and I were both greatly relieved when the fireman finally descended with the dog slung over his shoulder. Mutt had suffered no harm, other than to his dignity, but that had been ruffled. And he slunk away for home the moment the fireman put him down. Descending from trees always remained a difficulty for Mutt, and when he began climbing ladders he encountered the same problem and it got him into several curious situations. His interest in ladders had followed naturally upon his tree-climbing experiments, and I encouraged him, for I was anxious to expand my renown as the owner of a remarkably acrobatic dog. We began with step ladders, and these were easy. Rung ladders followed, and before many days he could mount quickly and lightly to the roof of our house. But if the pitch of the ladder was at all steep, his attempts to descend had first degenerated into a free slide that ended with a thump on the ground below. Eventually, he learned to control his descent by hooking his hind feet over progressively lower rungs while he guided himself with his forefeet. But in the early stages of his ladder-climbing career, he could only go up. Not content to experiment with our ladders at home, Mutt would tackle any ladder he came across. It so happened that there lived on our street a name by the name of Kuzinski, a baker by trade and on the night shift at his plant. It was Kuzinski's habit to spend the daylight hours improving the appearance of his two-story frame house. He used to repaint the entire house at least once a year, and each year he used a different color. One would have thought that he enjoyed ladder work almost as much as Mutt, for on any suitable day you could find Kuzinski perched high up under the eaves, wielding his brush. He once explained his passion for painting in this way. Why I painted? Why, you ask? 
She's lovely street, this place. Better I should look lovely, too. And so I painted. And so he did. I was not always fortunate enough to witness Mutt's misadventures, but I witnessed this one. It was unforgettable. It was on a Saturday afternoon, and Mutt and I had been for a tramp along the riverbank looking for dinosaur bones. On the way home, we passed Kuzinski's place, and I noted with approval that he was changing his color scheme again. This time, from green to puce. As I walked on, I did not notice that Mutt was no longer at my heels, for I was engrossed in speculation about the possibility of finding dinosaur bones in the Anglican churchyard. By this I hasten to explain, I mean that it had dawned on me that the grave diggers might conceivably stumble across such remains when they were about their work. I knew one of the diggers slightly, and I had just about decided that I would try to enlist his interest when there came a frightful shriek from somewhere behind me. I spun on my heel, and there, high on the south wall of Kaczynski's multicolored house, I saw a strange tableau. At the very top of the ladder was Kuzinski himself. He was clinging by his hands to the eave trough, while from his right foot a gallon can of paint hung precariously suspended. Immediately below him was Mutt. Mutt's situation was most peculiar. He must have attempted to turn around on the upper rungs of the ladder, but he had only succeeded in thrusting his head and forequarters through the rungs so that he was balanced on his midriff and helpless to move in any direction. Kuzinski was still yelling fiercely, but Mutt was saving his breath. I ran to their aid and, having clambered up the ladder, managed to get Mutt turned around. Kuzinski put his feet back on the top rung and we three descended to the ground. As Mutt's nominal master, I expected a severe dressing down, but Kuzinski surprised me. Apparently, his admiration for Mutt's climbing abilities outweighed the effects of the shock that he had suffered. It must have been a severe shock, too. I stand there painted, he explained to me, and nowhere looking when it comes up between the legs. Dat dog! Oh my, dat dog! I yump! What else? What else indeed? I only wonder what that he did not yomp clear up onto the roof. Mutt and I withdrew after I had made my apologies for both of us, and the outcome of the incident was that Kuzinski became our warmest friend in the neighborhood. He never tired of telling the story about that dog. On another occasion, Mutt found a tempting ladder, ascended it, and, being unable to turn around, simply clambered into an open second-story bedroom window and scratched at the closed bedroom door until the householder came upstairs and let him out. The owner of that house was another singular character. He had worked for the Canadian National Railways for thirty-odd years, and as a result he was the most phlegmatic man I ever knew. Nothing could disturb his equanimity. When he re-entered his living room after having let Mutt out the back door, his wife asked him what the noise upstairs had been, and he replied, Nothing, my dear, only a stray dog in the bedroom. 
I know that this is true, for his wife told Mother about it during a tea party, and Mother, recognizing that the culprit must have been Mutt, told me. It was after he had at last become fully competent at going both ways on a ladder that his brush with the cat lady occurred. I never heard her other name, if indeed she had one. To all of us on River Road, adults and children alike, she was known only as the Cat Lady. She lived in a ramshackle frame house at the corner of our block, and she kept cats. There must be many women like her in the world, spinsters most of them, who suffer from frustration and who take to cats in compensation. Women of this kind can be truly formidable in their felinity, and such a one was our cat lady. She knew no other love, no other interest than her cats, and when she began to have differences with her neighbors and with the public health authorities about them, she resolutely turned her back on the outer world. No human being was allowed to enter her house, and for some ten years before we arrived on River Road, not even the milkman, a favorite character whom she tolerated, had been inside her doors. She refused even to allow the meter readers to enter the basement, and finally the utility company had to cut off the power and the water. No one had any accurate idea of how many cats her house actually contained. It was one of the entertainments of my friends and me to spy on the place, but circumspectly, for she was a devil with her tongue and with her broom, and count the cats that we could see on the windowsills. One Saturday I counted forty-eight, but a chum of mine swore that he had once counted sixty-five. Because of dogs and neighbors, the cats were not allowed out into the yard, and the lower windows of the place were never opened, winter or summer. The interior of that house must have had an atmosphere reminiscent of the lion house at a second-rate zoo, for when the wind was right and the cat lady's upstairs windows were open, I could detect the unmistakable feline odor all the way down the block to our house. In order to give her cats some opportunity for exercise, the cat lady made use of an oddity in the design of her house. The place was built on a T-plan, with the crossbar representing a normal peaked roof section facing on River Road and the upright of the T representing a two-story structure with an almost flat roof that sloped gently toward the rear and terminated in a 15-foot drop to the back garden. Two gable windows of the main section of the house opened onto this flat-topped wing, and in fair weather these windows were opened and the cats could promenade over the roof to absorb fresh air and moonshine. They got no sunshine, for the cat lady allowed them no freedom in daylight, fearing perhaps that her neighbors would be able to make a sufficiently accurate count to force the public health officials to take action. I have no idea which one of us youths made the original suggestion. I was against it at first. It was only after much badinage and many taunting reflections on my courage and on Mutt's skill that I consented. There were five of us involved, and we chose a satisfactorily dark night toward the end of the summer holidays. We had no difficulty in transporting the ladder down the back alley and across the broken-down fence of the cat lady's property, and in setting it up against the end wall. We had no difficulty with Mutt, either. 
The cat smell was overwhelmingly powerful in his nostrils, and he, like the other dogs of the area, must have spent many a thoughtful hour considering ways and means of getting at this multitude of cats. He went up the ladder with the quiet agility of a squirrel, but when he reached the roof, his claws clattered alarmingly on the tin shingles. We discreetly retreated to the alley to await events. Mutt encountered a cat almost at once. There was a sudden scurrying, a despairing squalling noise, and then a thud as something fell into the yard. At once the night grew hideous. There must have been a score of cats loose on the roof, and in the darkness a frightful free-for-all began. The cat lady lived in deathly fear of burglars, or at least of male intruders, and I suppose she immediately assumed the worst. There was a volume to her screams that the whole pack of Sabine women taken all together could hardly have bettered. I think there was also something else, too, an ill-defined quality that seems to me now, looking back on it, to have expressed a kind of yearning hope. We had not expected such a violent reaction, and, appalled by it, we fled for the shelter of our respective homes, abandoning both mutt and ladder. But I was smitten by conscience when only halfway home. I stopped and was trying to nerve myself to return to the scene when Mutt happily caught up with me. He did not seem at all distressed. Rather, he seemed smugly self-satisfied, despite a four-pronged gash that ran the full length of his bulbous nose. From his point of view, the evening had been a considerable success. It was a success from everyone's point of view, except that of the poor cat lady and possibly of the two policemen who shortly arrived upon the scene. <clears throat> One of the policemen began to bang on the front door of the house, while the other raced around to the back in the hope of intercepting an escaping burglar. He found the ladder, but he had to fight his way up it against a perfect avalanche of cats that were hurriedly abandoning ship. There was a brief account of the incident in the next day's paper, but Mutt received no recognition for the part that he had played. He would not have cared had he known of this neglect. Throughout the next week, he and the other local dogs had themselves a wonderful time hunting cats that had fled from the roof, or that had escaped when the police finally forced the front door of the cat lady's house. Neither was justice visited upon us, who were the instigators of the whole affair, the police concluded that person or persons unknown had attempted to break in and had been foiled by prompt official action. The investigation was soon dropped since there were no helpful witnesses. All the cat ladies' neighbors having sworn that they had seen nothing that might be of assistance to the police. I have sometimes wondered about that. Only a week after the incident, I received a brand new and expensive twenty-two rifle as a gift from the man who lived next door to the cat lady, and to whom I had never even spoken before. Chapter 9 Conception and Misconception Although our sojourn on the Saskatchewan Plains 
satisfied my father in most respects, he nevertheless knew one hunger that the West could not still. Before coming to Saskatoon, he had always lived close to the open waters of the Great Lakes, and had been a sailor on them since his earliest days. Nor is this purely a figurative statement, for by his own account, he was conceived on the placid waters of the Bay of Quinte, in a green canoe. He came by his passion for the water honestly. During his first year in Saskatoon, he was able to stifle his nautical cravings beneath the weight of the many new experiences the West had to offer him. But during the long winter of the second prairie year, he began to dream. When he sat down to dinner of an evening, he would be with mother and myself in the flesh only, for in spirit he was dining on hard tack and salt beef on one of Nelson's ships. He took to carrying a piece of marlin in his pocket, and visitors to his office in the library would watch curiously as he tied and untied a variety of sailor's knots while talking in an abstracted voice about the problems of book distribution in prairie towns. Knowing my father and knowing too that he was not the kind to remain satisfied with the dream world, it came as no surprise to mother and me when he announced that he intended to buy a ship and prove that a sailor could find fulfillment even on the drought-stricken western plains. I was skeptical. Only the previous summer we had made a journey to Regina, the capital of the province, where I had spent some hours on the banks of the Wascana Lake. Wascana was made by men, not God, and by just such men as my father. It boasted two yacht clubs and a fleet of a dozen sailing craft, but it could boast of no water at all. I have never seen anything as pitiful as those little vessels sitting forlornly on the sun-caked mud of the lake bottom, their seams gaping in the summer heat. I remembered Wascana when Father told us his plans, and, supposing that he must remember the Phantom Lake as well, I asked him if he was contemplating dry land sailing, on wheels perhaps. I went to bed early and without my supper, and I felt a little hurt, for I had only been trying to help. He bought his ship a few weeks later. She was a sixteen-foot sailing canoe that, by some mischance, had drifted into the arid heart of Saskatchewan. Birthed temporarily in our basement, she looked small and fragile, but she was to prove herself a stout little vessel indeed, and in this year of 1957 she remains very much alive, still pert and active, and she and I still sail together every summer. My father spent the balance of the winter laboring over her. With meticulous and loving care, he built lee boards, splash boards, a mast, a steering oar, and a set of paddles. He borrowed mother's sewing machine and made a sail out of the finest Egyptian cotton, shipped to him from Montreal. As for the canoe herself, he burnished her sides with steel wool, 
scraped them with glass, and painted and repainted until her flanks were as smooth as the surface of a mirror. Then he applied the final coat of paint, bright green, and with some ceremony christened her Concepcion. He said that she was so named after an island in the Philippines. Her launching took place on a day in early May. I helped Father carry her down to the riverbank beside the 25th Street Bridge, and en route, we collected an interested group of followers. Vessels of any sort had been unknown in Saskatoon since the time of the prairie schooners, and Concepcion was an eye-catching maiden in her own right. As my father went about the task of stepping the mast and preparing the canoe for her first voyage, the crowd of onlookers increased steadily in numbers. High above our heads, the ramparts of the bridge darkened with a freeze of spectators. They were all very quiet and very solemn as father nodded his head to tell me that he was ready. And then I pushed Concepcion into her own element. It was early spring and the Saskatchewan River was still in flood. My father knew all there was to know about water, so he believed, and it had not occurred to him that there would be much difference between the Bay of Quinte and the South Saskatchewan. There was a good breeze blowing, and it riffled the surging brown surface of the water, effectively concealing the telltale swirls and vortexes beneath. The watchers on the bridge, on the other hand, knew a good deal about the nature of prairie rivers in the spring, and there may have been something fun funereal, funereal, funereal about the hush that lay upon them as they watched Father and Concepcion take to the stream. The launching took place several hundred feet above the bridge, but by the time Father had everything ship-shape and was able to raise his eyes to look about, the bridge had inexplicably changed its position in relation to him. It was now several hundred yards behind him, and receding at a positively terrifying rate of speed. He became extremely active. He ran up the sail and began hauling in the sheet in an effort to come about. From the parapets, where I now stood watching with the rest, there came a gasp of mingled awe and admiration. Most of the watchers had never seen a sailing vessel before, and they had always understood that sail was an old-fashioned and painfully slow way of getting about. Their eyes were being opened. Concepcion was acting strangely. She would not come about, for the current was stronger than the breeze. She resolutely skittered downstream, making about twelve knots. She should not have been making five in that light air, and my father knew it. He began to understand about the current. He got out his paddle, and with almost demoniac frenzy, strove to bring her head upstream. He was successful in the end. But by that time, he and Concepcion were no more than a rapidly diminishing dot upon the distant surface of the river. 
Some of the men standing on the bridge beside me began making bets as to when father would reach the town of Prince Albert, some hundreds of miles downstream. But it was clear that my father did not really want to reach Prince Albert. He was sailing the canoe now with a grim determination and a skill that he had probably never before been called upon to use. He wanted very badly to come back to Saskatoon. Concepcion beat back and forth across the river like a wood chip on a frothing mill race. She tacked and beat, and though she kept her head resolutely upstream, and though she was sailing like a witch, she nevertheless kept diminishing in our view until at last she vanished altogether in the bright distance to the north. One of the men near me glanced at his watch and spoke to his companion. Eleven o'clock. Of course, he'll be a mite slower now, going backward that way. But I reckon he'll, he'll hit the Prince Albert Bridge by supper time. I'll lay you fifty cents he does. He would have lost his bet, however, for father and Concepcion did not go to Prince Albert after all. They might have done so had they not been fortunate enough to run aground some ten miles below Saskatoon. Shortly after midnight, they arrived home together in a farm cart that was being towed by two non-committal horses. The setback to my father's design was only temporary. Never mind, he said at breakfast the next day. Wait till the spring flood passes, and then we'll see. But what we saw when the flood was gone was not encouraging. The South Saskatchewan was back to normal. A normal consisted of a desert expanse of mud bars with here and there an exp expiring pool of trapped brown scum, and in a very few, f in a few very favored places, a sluggish trickle of moving water. It was a sight that would have discouraged any man except my father. He refused to be defeated. He had made his plans, and the river would simply have to conform to them. That was the way he was. His plans suited me well enough, for we closed up our rented house and moved our old caravan some ten miles south of the city to the Saskatoon Golf and Country Club. Here on the wooded banks of the Saskatchewan, we established our summer residence. It was a fine place for a boy to spend a summer. There were enough pools remaining in the riverbed to provide swimming of a sort. There was a stretch of virgin prairie where coyotes denned and where determined gentlemen batted golf balls into gopher holes. And only a few miles away there was an Indian reservation. My time was my own, for the summer holidays had begun. But my father had to commute to work in the city every day. He might easily have done so by car, but he had planned to commute by water, and he refused to be dissuaded by the uncooperativeness of nature. At seven o'clock on the first Monday morning, he and Concepcion set out bravely, and full of confidence in one another. But when they returned late that evening, it was as passengers in and on a friend's automobile. My father was very weary, and uncommunicative about the day's adventures. 
It was not until years later that he admitted to me that he had actually walked eight of the ten miles to Saskatoon, towing Concepcion behind him through the shallows or carrying her on his shoulders across sandbars. There had been a brief but exciting interlude with one sandbar that turned out to be quicksand, too, but on this he would not dwell. Through the next few days, he wisely but reluctantly commuted in Erdley. But then there was a rainfall somewhere to the south, and the river rose a few inches. Erdley was again abandoned, and Concepcion returned to a place of favor. During the weeks that followed, she and father became intimately familiar with the multitudes of sandbars, the quicksands, and the other mysteries of the shrunken river's channels. And to the astonishment of all observers, my father began to make a success of his water route to the office. It was true that he still walked almost as far as he was able to paddle, but at least he was spared the ignominy of having to haul the canoe along in front of an audience, for a relatively deep channel running through the city enabled him to paddle the final mile of his route to the landing place near the Bessboro Hotel, with Hiawathan dignity. He would not leave Concepcion on the riverbank to await his return, but carried her with him right to the library building. The first few times that he came trotting through the morning traffic in the city center with the green canoe balanced gracefully on his shoulders, he caused some comment among the passers-by. But after a week or two, people ceased to stare at him, and no one, with the exception of a few ultra-conservative ice-wagon horses, so much as gave him a second glance. He and Concepcion had become an unremarked part of the local scene. Mutt often accompanied Father and Concepcion downriver. He quickly developed the requisite sense of balance and would stand in the bow, his paws on the narrow foredeck, poised like a genuine gargoyle. This was not mere posturing on his part either, <clears throat> for he had taken it on himself to give warning when the canoe approached shallow water or a hidden bar. His efficiency as a pilot was not high, despite his good intentions, for he was notoriously short-sighted. Nor could he, as they say, read water. <clears throat> After a hysterical outburst prompted by a current boil that he had mistaken for a submerged log, he would very likely be staring placidly into space when Concepcion ran hard aground. If the canoe was traveling at any speed, Mutt would be catapulted overboard to land on his face in the muddy water. He took such mishaps in good part, and would return to his piloting duties with increased vigilance. Father was able to paddle Concepcion, more or less, on the river, but that mean-natured trickle gave him no opportunity to sail. Since it was sailing he really craved, he was forced to look for other waters, and one weekend he announced that he would visit Manitou Lake, a vast saline slough that lies some hundred miles from Saskatoon. Manitou is one of the saltiest bodies of water in the world, and Concepcion was not designed to float in a medium that was hardly more fluid than molasses. She would have no part of Manitou, 
When we launched her, she hardly wet her keel, but sat on the surface of the lake, like a duck upon a slab of ice. My father was annoyed by her behavior and set about forcing his will upon her by loading her with rocks. It took an unbelievable number of boulders to force her down to her marks, and when father and I finally clambered aboard, it was to find her about as maneuverable as a concrete coffin floating in gelatin. The water in which she stuck was so thick with salt that I could almost hear the stuff rasping on her sleek sides. And when we hoisted the sail, the wind had as little effect upon her as it would have had upon the Carnegie-built walls of the Saskatoon Public Library itself. My father was infuriated by Concepcion's lack of response and unwisely began to jettison the ballast. He had heaved half a dozen large boulders overside when the canoe decided she had had enough. One gunwale rose buoyantly while the other sank, and in short seconds we were floating on a serene sea, while below us Concepcion was slowly dragged toward the bottom by her belly full of stone. We were in no danger. It was physically impossible for an unweighted human body to sink in Manitou Lake. On the contrary, we rode so high out of the water that we had trouble navigating to the nearby shore. And when we came to salvaging Concepcion, who lay in some ten feet of water, the unnatural qualities of Manitou posed a serious problem. We found that, when, that we simply could not dive. It was a most eerie experience, for we could not force ourselves more than a foot below the surface. In the end, Father had to weight himself like a South Sea pearl diver, with a basket full of stones. Clinging to this with one hand, he managed to reach the sunken ship and fasten a line to a thwart. Then he rather thoughtlessly let go of the basket. He came up from the depths like a playful salmon leaping after a fly, shot half out of the water, and fell back with a resounding thwack that must have hurt him as much as had, as much as had Concepcion's behavior. But in the end, the frustrations which beset my father's desire to sail again were no match for his perseverance. In August of that memorable year, we hitched the caravan to Erdley, placed Concepcion on the roof, and went off on a dogged search for sailing waters. And we found them, far to the north, in the jack pine country beyond Prince Albert, we came to a place called Emma Lake, and it was an honest lake, filled with honest water, and caressed by amiable winds. We launched Concepcion with trepidation, for there had been so many unfortunate episodes in the past. Then we climbed aboard and hoisted sail. It was the kind of day that graces the western plains, and only them. The sky was crystalline and limitless, and the hard sun cut the surface of the lake into a myriad of brilliant shards. Flocks of black terns swirled in the westerly breeze that came down on us from the pine forests and gently filled Concepcion's sail, bellowing it into a curve as beautiful as any wing. She came alive. We sailed that day, all of it, until the sun went sickly behind the blue shield of smoke from distant forest fires and sank away, taking the breeze with it and we sailed aboard a little ship whose swift and delicate motion was more than sufficient reward for the rebuffs 
that we had suffered.